This is the Cubs-related podcast presented by CubsInsider.com. My name is Corey. I am joined, as always, by Brendan, and we are coming to you on April 7th, 2021. It is a Wednesday, and the Cubs and Brewers finish up a three-game set at Wrigley Field bringing the first homestand of the year to a conclusion. And what started with a really nice all-around team win on Monday for the Cubs ends with the Cubs dropping the final two games to Milwaukee here. Brewers, of course, then winning the series. And we will talk about all of that. We will look back at this series and everything that happened throughout these last few days since we talked to you guys last. And then at the end of the episode, of course, we will set up the Cubs' next series. But Brendan, what started as a really nice way to begin the first meeting of the year with the Cubs and their rival Milwaukee Brewers ends on a pretty sour note with the performance in these last two games. But there were still positives, though, sure. Corey. Like Kyle Hendricks coming out in the last game looked good. Velocity around 87. Stuff was sharp. Changeup was sharp. Trevor Williams looked really good. And Adbert Alzali, after he gave up that rough three-run first, he settled down, and I liked his pitch repertoire. So from a pitching point of view, I thought it was a plus. But overall, yeah, the offense was disappointing, and you just hope that if the pitching continues to be like this, then the offense at some point is going to come along. But we will break down all of that in a second here. Let me just set the table for the discussion with a quick recap of these three games. Again, the Cubs and the Brewers beginning on Monday. The Cubs winning the first game 5-3 to three behind the arm of Trevor Williams, his father, a lifelong Cub fan in attendance. A lot of feel-good, wholesome content on Monday night at Wrigley Field. And Trevor delivered for his family in attendance in his first start as a Cub. Six innings, two hits, two earned runs, two walks, and six strikeouts. He was very good. I don't know if Brendan is going to hit us with an I told you so after just one start. Not feels yet. a little no, premature, but I, I can promise you, you can you can sense it bubbling in, in him after that start on Monday because Trevor Williams was very, very good in that game. The Cubs getting their run in a, a a couple different ways. The Cubs have a three-home run inning, including uh, two of the back-to-back variety, those coming off the bats of Wilson Contreras, Javier Baez, and David Bodie, all three of those in the fourth inning on Monday off of Brett Anderson, and then the bench guys coming through and manufacturing themselves a run in the seventh to get a little insurance. Uh, that was the combination of Jake Marisnik, Matt Duffy, and Eric Sogard. We'll probably talk a little bit about that as well. But again, 5-3 to three was the final on Monday. Relieving Trevor Williams was Jason Adam, who did give up a run. Andrew Chafin, who has been really good this season. He went an inning and a third, struck out all four of those batters. And Alec Mills actually picking up his first save in relief with Craig Kimbrell having gone the previous two days on Saturday and Sunday. On Tuesday, it was a 4 to nothing Brewers win. I don't think you guys care about how the Brewers got those runs, uh, but of note in this game, Adbert Alzali, of course, taking the mound for his first start 
of the year. It was a rocky first inning, giving up uh, a big home run to Travis Shaw. But Adbert did settle down for the most part for the rest of that game after the first inning. He ends up going five innings, giving up four hits, four earned, two walks, and four strikeouts. So not the season debut that I think he would have wanted, uh, but he did show a lot, I think, in being able to settle down there and ending up uh, giving the Cubs a little bit of length uh, after a rocky first inning. 4 to nothing again, the final on Tuesday, and then Wednesday in the series finale, it was a 4-2 to two loss for the Cubs in extra innings. The big blow of this game coming on a Lorenzo Cain three-run home run in the 10th inning. So a lot of us were complaining about the runner on second base rule in extra innings, but it didn't doesn't really matter when the guy puts the ball over the fence like that, and actually Lorenzo Cain home runs were the only way the Brewers scored on Wednesday. So that is super fun. In the eighth inning and the tenth inning, Lorenzo Cain gets them. We did have a really exciting moment in this game on Wednesday where Jock Peterson in the bottom of the eighth inning gets his first hit for the Chicago Cubs, and it was a big one. It was a solo home run to tie this game. He was jacked up, and it is a shame that this one goes down as a loss because that image of Jock, his celebration, the bat toss, uh, he turned around to look at the dugout and screamed, let's go, let's go, and... Unfortunately, the Cubs uh, are not able to capitalize that, and that's one of those many moments that was really great in the moment, but I don't know how much we'll remember it because it was a loss. But it was still really cool. Glad Jock had that moment. It was very exciting, and I'm sure for him he's relieved to be off the hitless uh, list. So that's uh, nice to see. Jason Hayward added an RBI single in the bottom of the 10th, but it was for naught. So Josh Hader ends up picking up the win for the Brewers in this one. It was Brandon Workman giving up that 10th inning home run to Lorenzo Cain. Also in this game, Kyle Hendricks looked a lot more like Kyle Hendricks than on opening day. Six innings, four hits, no earned, one walk, and six strikeouts. Andrew Chafin out of the bullpen, once again, really good. Two-thirds of an inning gives up a hit and strikes out two. Craig Kimbrell also pitches in this game a clean inning with a strikeout, so he continues to look very good on the 2021 season. So that was the story at Wrigley Field on Monday through Wednesday, and there's there's a lot of places to start here, um, but as we kind of said at the outset, I think we're going to focus on a lot of the positives and a lot of the stuff that, you know, really warrants further analysis. I, I, I know everybody's frustration with the offense has already started, or did it ever really end, Brendan? I, I don't know. Some of these some of these things blend together over the years. I'm not really sure if anybody has not been frustrated with the offense for a few years now, but we'll touch on that a little bit, but it's six games into the season, and some of this is a, a partially larger picture issue, so we'll see. But The first place I want to go, Brendan, is to have you talk to us about Trevor Williams because you wanted that signing. He looked really good in spring training, and he looked really good on Monday. And of course, it's only one start, uh, but I I know you had been dialed into a lot of the different things he was doing with his pitches, his repertoire, the sequencing, and everything. So tell us what you saw on Monday night that gave us uh, those results, which was a quality start and a win for the Cubs. Prior to Williams taking the mound, we, we knew he was working on two features. The first feature was not like pulling away from his pitches. That's how Tommy Hadovy described it. And so when he was signed at first, Tommy Hadovy went to Trevor. and was like, hey, look at your video from 2018, 2019, 2020. Last year, you're like pulling off your pitches. Trevor Williams 
talking about this with Sahadev Sharma is looking at his video and even telling like Sahadev, hey, this is what I'm talking about. This is what Tommy Hadi is talking about. And so you can look at the data, which reflects exactly that. So last year, his horizontal release point, you don't want to get too much in the, in the woods here with a lot of these data, but you can just tell that his release point drastically different last year horizontally than in years past. And if you look at last night's start or two nights to go start, he normalized that release point to a range that was similar before 2020. So that suggested that he's not pulling off his pitches as he was last year. That was the one change he made. The second feature that he was working on was getting back to his sinker. And I I love this because in 2020, he only threw sinkers 8% of the time. The year before and the two years before, he was throwing around 15-ish percent of the time. In his start, his first start with the Cubs, he threw it over 20%. So he went back to his sinker. It wasn't just going back to his sinker, though. What did he do? He elevated his sinker. He was doing exactly what Alec Mills has been doing, Kyle Hendricks, Adbert Alzali. The list goes on and on. Everyone on the Cubs with the sinker is more or less elevating it. And that's exactly what he did. And when you look at his sinker and how it matches his changeup, it was almost perfect. So he threw most of his sinkers uh, up and in, and then his changeup was thrown within the same tunnel and it just dropped off the cliff. And if you look at one example of his changeup to Christian Yelich, where, where he struck him out, that changeup was thrown with about two inches more of horizontal movement than in years past. So his changeup, and this is only one one game, so you don't want to get too bogged down in these like movement numbers because of this small sample, but within one game, his stuff was moving more, his release point was back to where it was before 2020, he started throwing more sinkers again, he started elevating those sinkers, and it was a good first start, man. I was looking at that slider, the, the stat cast data on his slider was not that much different, so it might just be as simple as getting that mechanics locked back into place, changing up her sequencing, changing up uh, the zones in which you throw. It was almost an ideal start, Corey. And I, I, it, gives, it gives proof to the concept that when looking at potential pitchers this team is trying to acquire, it's not just about like ERA and FIP and what that guy did with his team. It's more like, what can you do for me with your pitches and how can we groom yeah. you to fit some of our methods? And how do we get the most out of you for that? And that was why I thought Williams did look like a decent candidate. You know, we're, we're wrong a lot about uh, a lot of the times about this stuff. But for, for Williams, he does fit all the features that Tommy Hadovy likes. Good command, sinker, good breaking pitch, unorthodox release point. That That is Trevor Williams, and that's who he was in that first start. That's a really good point about kind of proof of the process. Again, only one start, but, you know, I think it still is a good example of that. And it, it's also an example of the strategy that the Cubs employed this particular offseason, which was finding a lot of guys who were cheaper, who, you know, maybe had not had a good year or were coming off injury, things like that. And it's only one start, but this is this is the strategy to get these guys, work with them, and have them crank out quality starts, right? Nobody was expecting Trevor Williams to be a Cy Young candidate or that this this way of going about fi- filling out the rotation or the bullpen is supposed to supplement 
those big name guys or, or spending a bunch of money. This is just where the Cubs were, and this is what you want to see out of it. You, you take the guy, you try to maximize what he has in, in a different way, and get a quality rotation arm out of it. And so through one start, that is what we saw. It was it was interesting to hear from... so. Trevor Williams actually described it as uh, it was nice to have his first real date with Wilson Contreras at Wrigley Field on Monday. I guess the starts that they did in spring training were were just practice dates. So this was, he described the real first date. Uh, But from the catcher on, on this particular night, Wilson said that one of the keys for Williams was strike one. He said, quote, man, strike one. Strike one makes the difference. It basically was strike one almost to every hitter. That opens a lot of doors. And it did feel that way. Even, you know, I'm looking at the graph right now. Wilson is correct, but just watching the game, it felt like Trevor was in command of this whole game. He was attacking that Milwaukee offense. He had a plan. They were executing it. It was just a a really nice start combined with everything with his dad being there, his family being there. You know, Marquis did a good job of letting us hear from his dad, Richard, and his brothers, and just that whole story of, you know, his his dad being a lifelong fan and, and sort of dreaming of this moment. It was just a, a really nice kind of special day at, at Wrigley Field. So everything about that was a lot of fun. And so with that on on Williams, of course, you know, we'll see what he's able to do next time out. But this was a, a very nice beginning to his Cubs career. And, and I think, you know, kind of speaking to a lot of what Brendan has talked about in his larger points, it looked like a start where everything was being put together right? Like we had talked about all this stuff. You, Brendan, and Sahadev Sharma and Jordan Bastian of Cubs.com had written a lot about these particular pitches and the changes that Williams had made and and all this stuff. And the start on Monday looked it, it bared that all out, right? You were able to see all of this coming together and understand why the results were there. So it it certainly I think to me is is something to be hopeful about and excited to see continue throughout the season. But kind of staying on the pitching staff, I did want to talk about Alzali a little bit. I, I think, you know, one of those things where everybody was pretty excited for that start on Tuesday. So it certainly was disappointing in that regard, but it it ended up being a decent start for Adbear. And I, I think that there's certainly stuff to learn from him, uh, for him in, in, in that start. Um, you know, obviously the way that first inning plays out, um, you know, walking Dan Vogelbach ahead of Christian Yelich. Yelich was able to get one down the line. So now you've got two guys on, uh, you know, left the pitch too much a little bit over the plate to Travis Shaw, who was able to, you know, get out to the outer portion of the plate and drive it for an opposite field home run. But then he he settled down and, and is able to give the Cubs five innings. And the offense wasn't in this game at all, so it didn't really matter. But to start the game with a three-run homer and get through five innings, he only gave up one more run. Four runs total should keep the offense in the game. It, it was a game. And I think that's, that's a, a decent place to start for Adbury. As much as I think all of us were really hoping he was going to go out there and just dominate, and it was going to be kind of like his debut where he's leaving the mound, tipping his cap, and getting a standing ovation, it wasn't that. And I think we all wanted that. But I, I, I think this is one of those starts where hopefully it can be a building block for him. You know, maybe there was some adrenaline, some jitters, all sorts of stuff. I don't know. But 
I, I thought it was a decent result for that first start. And one encouraging number from his start was his four-seam fastball. Corey, he made batters whiff on 31 fastballs five times. That is a whiff rate on a four-seam fastball three times what you normally see for a pitcher. So he was still getting whiffs. He's still making batters look a little weird. Some of the command was not there, but overall he's throwing 93 miles per hour. He located well at times. That slider was still apparent through 25 sliders and 77 total pitches. Again, that slider was not in his arsenal a year ago. He just developed that pitch last September. So there is still some growing processes to, to go through. And the fact that he's still getting whiffs on that forcing, the fact that he settled down after that first inning, that's what you want to see from a young pitcher. Like, it could have very easily gone the complete other direction. And he owned in on it, that second inning, that third inning, that fourth inning, he he found his bearings and he was able to recoup and recover and at least give Ross some more innings and not go too deep into that bullpen, which did have some effects later on in that game. And then, of course, in the last game, even though they ended up losing those games. So Adber, like for the first start, I'm, I'm fine with that, man. Again, it's not perfect, but you want to see him still use that slider. You still want to see him get whiffs on that four seam. You still want to see him use that sinker, which again, he threw in this start eight times again. So he's throwing those sinkers, those sliders a lot. He threw five pitches on that start. And that's what you want to see from your starter, not the two pitch guy that we saw from Adber last year, the year before, earlier on. And as a comparison, like you don't, like no more Jose Quintana's, man, like no more two pitch pitchers. I'm over it. And so to see Adber continuing... I know. To see Adbrook continuing to develop and throw five pitches is huge for me. And I think it should be huge for like all fans. That's that's a huge thing to watch. Yeah. And I, I think this, it kind of reminds me a little bit of spring training. He had some rough outings in spring training. I, I don't remember if it was his first outing or not, but one of those outings, he got knocked around pretty good in the early going of one of those Cactus League games. And he was able to come back and make adjustments, you know, get through it and have some other outings that were really nice, you know, and we talked a bit about that outing against the Dodgers that kind of caught everybody's eye toward the end of the Cactus League schedule and stuff. So I think this is, you know, hopefully just the regular season version of that. You know, he's probably going to get in there with Tommy Hanavi and talk things over. He'll talk with Jake Arrieta probably about, you know, bouncing back and things like that. But, you know, it was five innings of four runs. It, it wasn't a disaster. It wasn't some, you know, blow up or anything like that. I, I think, like I said, you know, we were all pretty pumped about Alzali Day and uh, getting him going and, you know, hopefully him kicking off some major run he was about to go on. And, you know, that 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 didn't necessarily happen. But I think it was a fine start for him and something that hopefully he can build on, learn some things from. And I, I you know, again, I, I just, I, I think we all believe in this kid so much uh, and wanted that first start at Wrigley to be a big one. And it was just, okay, but that's fine. We've got a long season here to go. I don't know how many starts he's going to get or how they're going to manage his innings and stuff like that. We'll probably get into that as as the season continues to unfold. But this was this was an okay place to start, and I, I think he's, he's going to learn from it and uh, continue to get better. So I think we can look forward to that. 
Uh, the only, you know, obviously the only other pitcher that goes in this game, this series is Kyle Hendricks. So I don't really have anything specific on him because, you know, for the last several weeks, I've been saying, I don't care what he does in spring training. I don't care that he had a bad outing on opening day. He's Kyle Hendricks. He'll be Kyle Hendricks. And I feel like that's pretty much what we saw on Wednesday, Brendan. He, he goes six innings. Ross opted to take him out uh, at 85 pitches. So I think probably could have gone longer, but the Cubs were trying to get hits and trying to score runs. Um, but this was a pretty classic Kyle Hendricks start. He looked really good. The command looked really good, getting whiffs, six strikeouts, only one walk. Um, it was a, you know, pretty vintage Kyle Hendricks start. So I think for, I don't, I don't know too many people that were worried after opening day, certainly not either of us. Uh, but he, I think calmed everybody down pretty, pretty quickly with the outing on Wednesday. Yeah. I mean, velocity back to 87, Change up. He threw 33 times, almost a third of his total pitches. He's getting whiffs on that pitch. He was who he always is, and that it's a great example to look at that velocity from this start, from the last start. Yeah, because sure. that first start he threw 85. This start he threw 87. That's a huge, huge uptick from his first start, and that just shows when you look at his velocity again. It's not about health. It's not about any type of weirdness going on that's abnormal for him. It's mechanical. It always has been mechanical for years. So if he's throwing 85, that is just reflecting that he's not locked in mechanically. If he's throwing 87, 88, look out. It's over because he's locked in. That means his other stuff is going to move. That means his command is going to be better. And that means his stuff is going to play better. And that's, again, what we saw against Milwaukee in that Wednesday start. Yeah. And another one of those starts we've seen, I think, unfortunately too much. And, uh, you know, this is not unique to the Cubs. I know uh, if there are any Mets fans listening to this, they would roll their eyes at even the suggestion that this uh, happens to anybody else because it happens to Jacob deGrom an awful lot over the years. But frustrating on a day like Wednesday because Hendricks was really good. He has that bounce back start and really gives you a start that should have put you in a position to win this series. Take two out of three, start the season winning both series, end that homestand four and two. Hendricks did what he needed to do to set you up for that. And it was another one of those days where you feel like the the pitching staff has to be perfect or it's just not going to happen. And uh, the pitching staff was really good uh, up until Workman got in there in the 10th. But through nine innings, they were really good. And unfortunately, it wasn't enough to get the win there. But I I do, before we, you know, even consider touching on the offense, um, I do want to talk a little bit about the bullpen and just kind of how we've seen David Ross using some guys, how things sort of seem to be setting up. Now, of course, we're still waiting on some potential guys that might factor into this, Rowan Wick being the predominant of those names. Uh, So, you know, some of this is certainly going to change. But one thing we know is that, again, continuing on Wednesday, Craig Kimbrell looks really good, and he's continued to look really good. The command is there. The velo is there. The whiffs are there. It just looks really good. So you, you at, at least for now, you know, and, and certainly going back to the end of 2020, you feel like you have that back of the bullpen, that last guy out, your closer, your dominant arm, however you want to phrase it. You feel like you have that pretty settled right now. You feel very comfortable, I think, giving the ball to Kimbrell in high leverage spots, save spots, whatever David Ross and Tommy Hanavi want to do. Kimbrell's your guy right now. But someone who is really stepping up, and I think for the moment, 
if Wick comes back, perhaps he's in this spot. But I, Brendan, I feel like your your number two guy out of the pen right now is the mustache, Andrew Chafin. Chafin so far has been one of the best relievers in the league. So if you just look at you know average exit velocity. Uh, weighted on base average, expected ERA, all of that. He's in the 99th percentile, Corey. Literally one of the best relievers in the league. And it's funny because he's doing this a little bit differently than in years past. Last year, for example, threw a sinker once every three pitches. This year at the Cubs, once every other pitch. So basically 50% from like 33%. A huge spike in sinkers. Again, does it ring a bell? These guys are increasing their sinker usage or developing a pitch, and in doing so, throwing that sinker up in the zone. Brendan, I, I got to say, I'm I'm sensing, call me crazy, but I, I kind of <laughs> get the feeling that Tommy Hadovy likes sinkers. He knows what he's doing, Corey. I mean, it's, it's weird, though, because not it's counterintuitive to me to want to throw sinkers up in the zone, right? And I was watching the Pitching Ninjas interview with Lucas Giolito. Giolito throws change-ups up in the zone, like high change-ups. Yeah, man. I mean, I think you've heard us say it enough. Like, uh, Tommy Hadovy, do do your thing. Like, whether it seems counterintuitive uh, on the surface or whatever, I, I think they know what they're doing. I think they've shown that. So uh, I'm all for whatever they want to do. But I, I am confident in Andrew Chafin right now. I, I think... He's clearly someone that Ross is leaning on and and comfortable with using in some of these higher leverage spots or the later spots, getting whiffs, not putting guys on base. That's what you want to see. And of course, he's doing it with a glorious stash. So that's always a nice bonus. So that at least to me is kind of how it appears. We've seen a lot of these other guys in spots. Um, You know, Jason Adam has uh, not looked as good as I think, you know, he did in parts of that 2020 season, but I, he's he's got the stuff, and, and I think, you know, we saw him at parts of the 2020 season be one of those arms that, that David Ross was really turning to and really trusting in big spots, so certainly I would like to see him get back there, and, and always been a guy that uh, I've liked his stuff and, and liked what I think w- the Cubs can do with him, so uh, hopefully he's able to kind of, you know, tighten that up a little bit, and then as far as the bullpen, the only other thing that I really wanted to talk about, we did see Dylan Maples get into a game on Tuesday. He goes two innings, he walked two, but he also struck out four guys. So kind of the classic Dylan Maples experience a little bit, but it was good to see him get in there. You know, he, he did break camp with the team and uh, the Cubs had, you know, David Ross and Tommy Hadovy had not found a spot to get him into a game for a little bit. So at least kind of saw that and were able to sort of see what he was able to do. Other than that, you know, I think kind of guy, you know, the Dan Winklers, Ryan Taperas, et cetera, they're kind of fighting in that hierarchy. You know, no one uh, else has really been like, I think, like a standout, okay, this guy's making a name for himself kind of guy. So, you know, through only six games, it's a little harder to tell where everybody fits in. But I think for now, it, it does sort of appear that Kimbrell and Chafin are maybe at the top of that hierarchy in terms of who David Ross is trusting and who he's going to in these games. But I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, and maybe Brandon Workman is involved in the, in this discussion a little bit, but Alec Mills, uh, it's it's been an interesting usage for him to start this season. Now, obviously, he didn't make the rotation initially, but given the 
162-game season and everything we've talked about with covering the innings with different pitchers, you sort of expect him to stay relatively stretched out, maybe get some starts here and there or down the road, however they're going to manage all of this. Uh, But he comes in for the save on Monday. As I said in the recap, Kimbrell had gone Saturday and Sunday against the Pirates, so they let him have a down day on Monday, and Mills gets the save, and he strikes somebody out, a clean inning, no hits, no walks. It was pretty uneventful. He said after the game that it was pretty cool. He's not used to being in that spot, but he's, he, he noted that it was pretty cool to be out there and have all the fans get up and prepare to sing Go Cubs Go and fly the W and all that. He, he, he was feeling that energy, so a unique spot for him, but it kind of sounded like he enjoyed it a little bit. And he also talked after the game about being willing to, as we've heard with some of these guys in this organization before, being willing to do whatever he can, you know, and, and, and the best skill for him is just availability and readiness. And if David Ross wants him to pitch in the ninth inning, he'll pitch in the ninth inning. If he wants him to be a, a long relief man, a swing man, whatever, he'll do it. I, I think his preference is to be in the rotation, but it, it's always good to hear these guys be like, look, if, you know, he needs me to get pick up a save, I'll go pick up a save. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to do it. I'm ready to battle and try it. But just interesting to see the way that the Cubs have decided to use him. So he gets the save on Monday and then is the first reliever out of the pen on Wednesday to relieve Kyle Hendricks. So he goes an inning and a third, uh, one hit, one earned run, no walks, no strikeouts. He did give up a home run in this one. So I think the there, there's a few things that I'm, I'm curious about. I mean, it's just interesting to see how they use these guys, similar to how it was with Mike Montgomery. When he's not in the rotation, it's always just sort of interesting to see how the Cubs decide to use guys like this. Um, but I, I did find it, I, I don't, I, I don't want to say curious. I'm not really sure of the word, Brendan, but you separate Hendricks and Davies in the rotation with Jake Arietta, which seemed to be an intentional decision to not put two guys who throw on the slower end and think, you know, rely on changing speeds and whatever, even though they're not the same pitcher, you separate them intentionally just to give different looks, right? So I, I, I was a little surprised to see Mills relieve Hendricks. It just seemed interesting to have Hendricks start the game, go six innings, and then to bring in a guy who throws slower than Kyle Hendricks. I, I don't inherently disagree with it, but it's just been interesting to see how Alec Mills in particular has been deployed just through these six games. Yeah, it's a little confusing. I think him closing out that game, the first game of the series, it, it did make sense to me just because they went early, when I say they, David Ross, went early with Chaffin, went early to his fireman crew early in the game in the seventh inning. So I had no issue with trying to get through those high leverage situations in the seventh and the eighth inning and go with uh, Mills in the ninth, assuming that that chance would be there. So I, I had no issues with that. I thought his usage in the seventh inning of that last game relieving Hendricks was a little odd to me. And that's because we still had like Chaffin in the pen. In the pen. We still had I know Workman blew the game, but he, he's one of your high leverage relievers. He's, he's, he's there. So in my mind, I was kind of assuming that once Kyle got in the seventh and couldn't get out, or if Ross wanted to pull him before even getting to the seventh, that we would see more of a traditional type of bullpen usage where it's Workman, Chaffin, and Kimbrell. But to see Mills being used there, 
instead of like a high whiff guy, and especially with uh, you know a pen that's not too debilitating and not too fatigued. I don't I don't like that. I I like Mills. I'm fine with him being used when the pen and the high leverage guys are unavailable, which is what happened Monday. I'm I'm not fine with him taking opportunities away from guys that that get whiffs. And if if Mills is going to get starts soon within the next like month or so, I I would imagine he needs to continue to be stretched out. So I was thinking that his usage would be more so to piggyback off of guys like Alzali or Arietta when they can't get past a fourth or fifth inning. I thought that would be his role, and we're not really seeing that right now. Six games into a season, especially with a bullpen that, as we all know, you know, didn't necessarily have too many clear-cut, here's this high-paid guy and this is his role, here's this other guy and this is his role— it's sort of a process to see how David Ross decides to use these guys, the roles that they occupy, and the decisions that the team and, and the front office ultimately decide to make. It's it's also one of those spots where you kind of have to remember that David Ross, at this point, is only managing his what, Brendan? If I'm doing quick math, he managed 62 games in 2020, plus six here, 68 that that sounds correct, but with me and math, it's probably wrong somewhere. So maybe that's you know he he hasn't even managed a full season of regular season or postseason major league baseball games, right? So it's still a process, and it and it's still kind of figuring out. You know, I think all of us could detail in an essay what we thought of Joe Madden's usage of pitchers and what his trends were and what he clearly favored or didn't favor. I could probably tell you, Brendan, right now, here's the situation, who's in the bullpen, and you could tell me, here's what Joe Madden would do. I don't know if we know that yet with David Ross, or certainly not to that same level of certainty or understanding. So it's still a bit of a process, and I think it's still a bit of a process for David. David Ross came out after the game and said, I'm going to make some mistakes too. And he was talking about letting Trevor Williams uh, go back out there and try to pitch longer than uh, you know it. He he should have, I guess, is what Ross was saying. But it was it was nice to hear David Ross say, "I think I made a mistake. I think I shouldn't have let Trevor go back out there. I think I should have gone to the bullpen sooner." And that's on me. So I just bring that up to say that, you know, when we're trying to figure out how David is going to use these guys who should be getting higher leverage innings and roles in this bullpen and stuff like that, it's a learning process. It's a learning process from a roster perspective. And also because we don't have a manager that has years and years of experience managing bullpens and and making these decisions. Uh, And I think for the most part, David Ross has been pretty good about a lot of this stuff, lineup decisions, bullpen decisions, things like that. That, playing time decisions, but it's you know it's always I think good to keep some perspective in mind that he is a younger manager and he's he's still sort of figuring all this out. And when you have a team that is not just a bunch of clear cut top tier high leverage relievers, where it's very easy to figure out where everybody should slot in, it's a bit of a process. So I think that's where we are in it for now. But still, the main takeaway from this bullpen through two series uh, for me, and I think it should be for everybody, is that Kimbrell looks lights out. He looks awesome. And that's, as we've noted, from any perspective this season goes, 
really important for the Chicago Cubs. So keep it up, Craig. That has been uh, great to watch. So I want to transition to the offense now. And before we get into the everyday lineup and some of the very putrid numbers that we've seen through six games, I I want to start with the inning on Monday that I mentioned, I referenced in the recap, but I, I want to lay it out for you, how the Cubs ended up scoring an insurance run, because it was just one of those, and, and this is another one where it's a shame that the Cubs end up losing these following two games, because Monday was such a nice win. It was such a good team win, and really felt like an, a nice sort of building block to a successful series, beginning the year two for two and winning series, however you want to look at it. But I, I just want to throw out how the bottom of the seventh on Monday went, because this was picture perfect from these three guys off the bench. And when I say picture perfect, what I mean is this went, if when, when you look at why Marisnik, Duffy, and Sogard are on the team, the role that they're supposed to occupy, the skills that they are supposed to be bringing to this team, you could not have scripted an inning better than the bottom of the seventh on Monday. And it was against Devin Williams of the Brewers, who I believe was the reliever of the year in 2020. So this was really impressive, but it started with a Jake Marisnik walk. He steals second base, and I think I'm going to say this every time, Brendan, but so deceptively fast, right? Like, he, he's so tall, and, and but he's he's got so much speed. And so I think I'm going to bring that up every time. But he steals second base. Matt Duffy, who, as we mentioned, and who, Brendan, you liked a lot coming out, in, you know, into yeah. spring training and, and coming out of spring training, because through his career, he's shown an ability to have higher contact rates, higher on, on base percentage rates. He flies out deep to right field, so Marisnik gets to third. So Marisnik gets on, uses his speed, right? This is what he's supposed to do. Duffy makes contact, gets him over, and then with a runner on third and less than two outs, Here's Eric Sogard, who is on the team uh, because they want Nico to develop more, but because he makes more contact than some of these other guys and is that veteran guy who knows how to hit situationally, right? What does he do? He triples down the right field line to bring home Marisnik. So it's it it was just one one inning, one run, three plate appearances, so not crazy. And we've got a whole season here, right? But it was just great to me to see a run manufactured in exactly the way you want these three guys contributing on this team. And when we heard about situational hitting and opportunity hitting, and we saw Joe Madden throwing miniature baseballs from 30 feet away to batters to improve that, to have a batter like Duffy and the roster could turn over in the next few months. We don't know. But right now, the numbers make sense. To have a batter like Duffy, who swings at pitches outside the zone at a 20% rate, which is well, well below league average compared to the 30% league rate, also making well above league average contact by about 10% uh, 10% more than league average, it's, it's a nice mix-up for this team. And when you see Marisnik on base ahead of... Duffy and seeing Marisna kind of do what we hoped Almora would do, play good defense, run the bases well, steal bases, have some type of offensive potential, a ceiling that he could get to one day. 
to see Marisnik actually embody what we hoped Elmora would do is it's it's fun to see and also a little encouraging again in the process that they are identifying players under Jed at this point that are going under the radar and possibly contributing to this team. Yeah, Marisnik also had a nice at bat in the what ended up being a fake rally on Wednesday in uh, the 10th there to get on base and, and keep that going. Uh, but that was a, a nice a nice at bat, takes his walk. And so, yeah, I think he's, uh, we, we were into that when we kind of saw him get going in spring training. And that's, that's looking like a nice signing, a nice, a nice depth and bench piece uh, in Jake Marisnik. But I just wanted to bring that up because, you know, th- this has been such a slugging heavy team. And, you know, we see it on Monday, too, where they hit three home runs in an inning. Uh, They go, you know, guys go back to back. So we know this team can provide the fireworks at times. But it was just nice to see these guys do exactly what they're here to do and manufacture an extra insurance run. So I wanted to make sure I highlighted that from Monday. But let's talk about the offense, Brendan. We've got about 15 minutes left in this show. Uh, We're going to preview the upcoming series here for the Cubs uh, this weekend but we have to talk about the offense. So to me, I think this is a really interesting spot for this team because it's a spot where it's six games into a season, right? In 2020, that was 10% of the season. So you're kind of looking at things pretty differently, right? It was a different pace. This is a regular season. We have a very long way to go in this season you can look any year from baseball's history, basically. You can find teams when the schedule's this long that start April hot and miss the playoffs by 15 games or that start miserably and win their division and go on to win the World Series. I mean, the Washington Nationals just did this where it was into May and June that they were looking dead in the water and they got really hot. They played better than everybody for three months and won the World Series. And when they were winning the World Series and you were watching them kind of operating at their highest level, nobody was like, how is this team winning? They they looked really good. So you never want to react too strongly to six games because it's six games. But the interesting thing about this Cubs team is a, a lot of this, not all of it, some of it is different and, and things like that, but a good portion of it feels very familiar, Brendan. And so I I'm I'm in a weird spot where I'm I am not I I can't react too strongly to six games one way or the other. There are certain things like Kyle Hendricks where I'll be like, he's fine, right? I, I don't care. He is who he is. It doesn't matter. He's fine. But I I can't react too strongly to six games. It's too early. It's April. It it's just too early. But I'm finding myself having a hard time really blaming people for being a little frustrated already and kind of rolling their eyes and, you know, some of those like it's the same old thing, stuff like that. I think if you're writing the team off or the offense or you're done with the season or anything like that, that's obviously a bridge too far. You're overreacting. It's way too early. But I, I'm like seeing people being like same old offense. We've seen this before, blah, blah, blah. And while I'm not putting out that energy, 
I I don't know if I can really blame people. You know what I mean, Brendan? It's it's an odd spot where it's like, yes, it's six games, but is it just six games? Because for some of this stuff, it's it's not just these six games. It's not just 2020, right? It's it's not just 2019. Some of this stuff we've been seeing for a good while, and I I'm kind of in a weird spot with how to react to all of it. It's more just a reminder of how volatile they've been in years past. And you do have to ask yourself the question, like, are you confident in this offense getting to that next level? And when you see in the first six games, a continuation of some trends from years past, especially like looking at Javi's whiffs on high fastballs and seemingly guessing at times, not throw him under the bus, but I kind of am here, but that's what I mean is can Javi get to a point where he's not last year? He's not post all-star break in 2019. He's more like that early 2019, that 2018, and even that 2017 guy. Can Javi get to that point? And he has to get to that point for this team, I think, to even be competitive. Javi has to be a borderline to slightly above league average offensive hitter. And if he's going to keep doing this and continue trends that we saw from last year and go and talk about how he was not into baseball, then how am I supposed to be confident that he can turn things around? Like I said, it's a weird spot because it's six games, but they have not been good in these six games. So to look at some of their numbers through six games, um, and this is coming from Matt Clapp, friend of the podcast at the blog finds on Twitter, batting average. 30th in the league. Batting average on balls in play, 30th in the league. On base percentage, 28th in the league. Slugging percentage, 28th. Walk percentage, second. K percentage, the fifth worst. Uh, Contact rate, 28th. So that's not good. They're taking walks, which is good, but as far as hitting the ball, almost dead last in, in basically all of these categories. So that's not good. And I think we've seen, you know, kind of like what you're you're saying on Javi, uh, but we also saw it in that last at bat with Ian Happ, and that's just one example. It, it, it's it's not just those two guys, but we we still are seeing instances of something we saw, I think, mostly in 2020 that you were really concerned by, which was that this this team is often getting their pitch to hit. They're they're getting meatballs over the plate, and they don't they don't do anything with them. Um, they foul them off or they fly out or whatever it is. Uh, but, you know, the way the game ended on Wednesday, Ian Happ had some good pitches to hit, and he's put together good yeah. at-bats. Um, he's had a great eye through the beginning of this season, taking so many walks to to start this season. So, again, I, I don't mean to direct anything at him, but it was just an example of, like, the, it feels like over the years we've seen those at-bats fairly frequently where you're like, ugh, that's the pitch, like, that's the one, and it just it it just doesn't turn into anything productive for the offense. So I I think part of it is we we knew that it was going to be like this with this group, right? Like you can't have certain trends and certain things happen for years at a time, make one significant change in swapping Peterson for Schwarber and expect 
wildly different results. So we know that this offense is going to ebb and flow. We know that there's going to be a point, hopefully it's this weekend, where we're talking like, oh my God, this offense is on fire. Like, yes, this lineup feels so deep. And, you know, one through eight, like they, you feel like they're dangerous and they're working counts and stuff like that. That'll happen. But so will stretches like this. We, we just know this at this point. And part of that is... When we talk about like, oh, you know, we, we kind of have lowered expectations for the team overall. They can compete in a, a not great division and, you know, hopefully they can hit that high 80s, low 90s win projection and win the division and get hot at the right time, whatever. Like that's partially what this looks like, right? Like that's that's what a team that wins 87, 88 games or something like that, that you're going to have series like this right? If they were going to win every series they played, you wouldn't be projecting them to win 88 games or 90 games. So that's kind of what I mean when I say it's kind of a weird spot for me because I'm confident that this offense will be better than this and that they will have stretches where they look good and the lineup looks deep and long, but it is totally understandable and I and I'm still personally like trying to figure out exactly the conclusions to draw I I do think it's understandable to be frustrated and you know kind of like looking around like we've seen this before you know I I get it it's uh again kind of just the deal with this group it to expect something to be magically different was wouldn't have been a a good idea like not a good process but that doesn't make it any less frustrating and I think what is if there's anything that I I would allow myself to get concerned about over six games because it is still so early it's that there there's just been a lot of at bats that just don't look good um and that just don't look competitive or, uh, you know, guys just look bad at at certain times. And I I don't want to pile on with Javi, but the reason that a lot of attention gets paid to Javi is because he's a star on this team. And this team is built with him being a star. So, you don't want to put too much pressure on him. You don't. It's it. You know. You don't want to ever have a conversation where it feels like you're directing too much at him because it's not just him. There's eight, you know seven other hitters in the lineup and a pitcher hitting. Right. It's not just him. But you're right, Brendan. Like this team needs him to be a star. And when he's not performing at that level, it's it's quite noticeable. And I would be lying to you guys if I told you he looked good in a lot of these at-bats. He hits a home run on Monday to the opposite field, and it's always a good sign when he goes to the opposite field. But a lot of these at-bats, he just doesn't look great. He's late on a lot of these fastballs. He's missing pitches over the middle of the plate. Uh, it, it does feel like you'd want him to adjust more and maybe shorten the stroke a little bit in some some of these counts and stuff like that. But you know, again, like it's six games and I, it's still hard for me to like, I, I, I don't feel in a position to be doubtful of, of Javi Baez, but I, I get where everybody's coming from. It's, it's a, it's a tough spot. It really is, Brennan. Let's preview the upcoming series in Pittsburgh against the Pirates. So we have the first game 
Thursday, an early start time, 12.35 p.m. Central. Jake Arietta on the mound for the second time, facing opponent Tyler Anderson now, for Brendan, the Pirates. I, I don't want, I'm yes. sorry to interrupt you, but did, did you say Jake Arietta is going to be on the mound in Pittsburgh facing the Pirates? Yeah, you oh, know, I'm trying to think of, you know, momentous occasions he's done yeah, that. Yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. have to think about that. It rings a bell. So It does. So we'll have Jake back on the mound Thursday. On Saturday, we have an off day on Friday, kind of a weird series here. But on Saturday, we have Zach Davies on the mound for the Cubs, facing Mitch Keller for the Pirates. That game starts at 5.35 p.m. Central. On Sunday, we have Trevor Williams back on the mound for the Cubs, making his second start in Pittsburgh. That game starts at 12.05 p.m. Central. He'll be facing JT, JT Brubaker, I believe is how you pronounce his name. And Brubaker is also his second start of the year. Pittsburgh, not off to a good start. 1-5, how they should be. And the Cubs right now, 3-3, three and three, 500, looking to get back above 500 and continuing this positive pitching. Uh, what I'm looking for is better at-bats, Corey. I mean, top to bottom, I want to see KB continue to look good at the dish. I want to see Ian Happ continuing to take pitches. But at some point, we're going to need these play discipline to turn into base hits. Um, we need more base hits. It's that simple. Yeah, I mean, look, that that's, that's what it is. I, th- I think you... This early in the season, you want to continue seeing what some of these starters are doing, how they look, obviously continuing to see how Jake Arrieta looks, how he's able to build on that first start. Same goes for Trevor Williams. Um, but it's it's about the offense. And I like it, it. there's part of me that like is pained to say that because I know you guys have heard me say that so many times. It's about the offense. It's all about the offense. It it is what it is, but it's 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 early, and I think they're 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 going to turn it around. They're going to look better than this. So I think a little bit of patience out the gate here is is warranted, even if it is stuff that we are familiar with. But a three and three start to the season is not the end of the world, right? I think four and two, winning those first two series would have felt a lot better. And it's always frustrating, especially the game on Wednesday, but even the game on Tuesday as well. You feel like you were really only a couple big hits or a couple better at bats from winning this series. And and that is what is frustrating. But again, that's kind of the deal with an, you know, high 80s or mid 80s, whatever they end up being, low 90s. That's how it is with teams like that. You're often going to be in a lot of close games. You're often going to leave some series feeling like you could have done more and that it was right there for you. And you might leave a lot of series feeling like you stole some. So it is what it is. Uh, but three and three to start the season is certainly not the worst way that they could have gone. And as I think we outlined in this show, there was a lot to like. There was a lot to like. There was a lot to look forward to and a lot to be optimistic about. So we will talk to you guys on Sunday evening after the Cubs finish up that three-game set in Pittsburgh. As always, we thank you guys for listening to the Cubs-related podcast and engaging with us on social media. We also appreciate the rush of reviews that we saw on the Apple Store, uh, a lot of five-star reviews, and really nice comments. We always appreciate that. I think we've said that before, but it's uh, really humbling and and flattering and, and still after years, pretty shocking to Brendan and I that uh, some of you guys have such nice things to say and that you enjoy our show here. So uh, we're always happy to talk about the Cubs and we will continue doing that on Sunday. So thank you guys for listening. And as always, go Cubs.